Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. My name is Ben Blacker. Uh, I'm the creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. Um, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's very kind. Um, more importantly, uh, I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, which is a stage show. Yes. I don't blame you. It's great. Uh, stage show in the style of old-time radio, for those of you who don't know, which is here monthly at Largo at the Coronet. It's also a podcast on the Nerdist Network, same as the Nerdist Writers Panel. Each and every live panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. Um, so I really appreciate all of you guys coming out and supporting 826LA. Please give them a round of applause. We, we also want to thank... Um, this, this panel was made possible by Fast Company magazine, uh, whose Fast Company Most Creative People issue came out, uh, Most Creative People in Business, uh, which they somehow included television in and somehow brought me into, and I'm very lucky for it. So please give Fast Company a round of applause. All right. I think that was the hard part. So we have some surprises for you tonight, in addition to the people whom you signed up to see. Um, <laughs> I think, I think you'll enjoy it. I do. Do you guys love TV like I love TV? Okay. Just making sure. So here's the thing. There was this great album that came out last year called Sun Mid- Midnight Sun, uh, and it's by a friend of mine. Yeah. So do any of you know it? A handful? Good. Um, <laughs> clap anyway. She's right there. <laughs> Yeah, so my point is more people should know about this album. I play it every day, embarrassingly, because I'm friends with the person who made it. So I was like, Sarah, I don't know why your music is not being used in every TV show ever. Let's get you in front of some TV people and make them put your songs in their shows. That's how it works, right? Um, And she said, Ben, I have no relationship to television. My songs are not being used except in one episode of... uh, What show was that? Heart of Dixie. <laughs> um, so, so she was like, you are dumb. Uh, we need to justify this a little bit. And I was like, all right, that's fair on both counts. Um, so what will we do? And she said, how about we use some songs that were, uh, she, she learned some songs that were memorably used in TV shows. So in addition to a couple of her own songs, she's going to play some songs that were memorably used in TV shows. But please welcome Sarah Watkins. <laughs>
delighted to have uh, found my way to sneak into this panel somehow. here before the uh, the show kicks in here um. <laughs>
Sarah Watkins, please give her even more applauding. All right. She wouldn't learn the Game of Thrones theme. It's used. I'm like, it's all fiddle. <laughs> nope. Please give a round of applause to tonight's Nerdist Writers panelists, Vince Gilligan, Liz Merriweather, Carlton Cuse, Greg Daniels, Ian Roberts, Jay Martell. There we go. They haven't even answered a question yet. I want to begin by talking about endings, if we might. Um, I'm out of here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Get ready. Uh, Greg, let's let's start with you. Uh, This is Greg Daniels, everyone. Uh, Greg, you just uh, celebrated a big ending of The Office. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience and, you know, visiting these characters with, for the last time and writing these characters for the last time. Uh, how was it for you? Uh, what was it like emotionally? What was it like practically? And has it really sunk in yet? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can start with someone else. I have to talk about it. Um, 
Make sure you answer the questions in the orders received. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when you're writing episodes, sometimes uh, uh, if you there's stuff that makes a great episode but damages the series. Um, for example, there was a big episode that we did on King of the Hill a long time ago where the um, character of Dale found out about his affairs. I, by the way, I didn't pitch it, and I argued against this episode. <clears throat> because at the end of it, well, you know, we had gotten eight years out of the joke of him not knowing about his affair, and now that was over. Um, but uh, there's something similar here in the sense that, like, when Steve Carell left, great episode, um, but then you have to do the show without Steve Carell. Um, so I don't know. I think it was, it was sort of exciting and fruitful but we had to kill the entire series uh, <laughs> to get this good arc that we had this year, I think. Um, was it an emotional experience writing that finale for you? Uh, yes, very much. Uh, maybe, How did you... No. no. <laughs> How did you approach it? Was, it? was it room written? Did you sit down with the, uh, the computer yourself and say... I'm just going to throw everything out and see what it's going to be. How, how did it come together? Well, uh, we had a lot of pitching on it going back years. Um, mm. When I had the writer's assistants print out all the pitches having to do with the end, it, you know, there was stuff from season three, and, you know, it was kind of fun because a lot of a lot of pitches about what Michael did uh, <laughs> <laughs> as he was ending the show. Of course, he wasn't on the show anymore. I couldn't <laughs> use those. Um, but, what, you know, was I had there a big stuff, phone book of, of pitches. Uh, was there stuff you found in those that you wound up using? Some of them. I had an idea um, for, like, around season three that there would be a big panel like this and um, that the characters would get questioned. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, going to be the, the um, kind of the centerpiece of the, the series finale in the back of my mind for years. <laughs> and then as we got closer to it, the it got a smaller and smaller position as all these other storylines cropped up, but it was still in there for an act at least. But uh, and, yes, and I'm curious: was it an emotionally satisfying experience for you, or did it not hit you until? Well yeah, after I was. For, the weird thing is, I was so out of sync with the cast because, you know, um, in in writing it, I was like, oh, I'm saying goodbye to all these characters, all these beloved characters. And then by the time we were shooting it, I was so concerned about getting this enormous number of pages shot that I was like, shut up! Go! <laughs> Get through this scene! Stop trying! Stop acting emotional! You're slowing us down! <laughs> um, and, um, and then I was just re- like really happy. Weirdly, you know, happy... Uh, because I wasn't leaving work, because I was going into edit right afterwards. So the last day or two, I was just like, this is great. We're getting it all. I'm going to go edit it now. And everyone else was taking their tearful goodbyes. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. It didn't work out for you. Uh, Vince Gilligan. Hey, Vince Gilligan is here, you guys. You're staring down an ending here yourself. Yeah. Uh, everything's shot, and are, are you edited? Is everything done at this point? You're just waiting to air? We, uh, we wrapped uh, editing early today. Just to, uh, I wrapped uh, early today. Just wow, congratulations. Yeah. We, uh, 
we are cutting. We are, we just finished up Act Two of the final episode. Mm -hmm. uh, so we got uh, I don't know how many more days we got, but uh, we're we're cutting halfway through cutting the the, yeah. the very last one. Uh, how has it been for you? You know, we t we talked recently, and that podcast is out there for anyone who wants to listen about the you know the emotion of that ending and how it hadn't really hit you yet. So now, as you're almost done with post, yeah. Has it hit you yet? You know, it, it, a lot of what Greg just said sounds like my experience as well. It, it's, it's, uh, and I was talking to Carlton beforehand. Uh, it, it's, it is a series of endings because you have the, you have, uh, in this case, I wrote the last script and, and writing the end and the last script. I, I keep waiting to cry, although admittedly I didn't tell any of my crew this. I know some of them are here tonight. I actually cried writing the end of the putting the end on the last episode, I kind of teared up as all by myself in, our, or I was in Albuquerque. I haven't, I haven't since then. And I felt kind of she, I feel kind of sheepish saying that, but because uh, it's like, you know, reminds me of this great Steven Seagal story, actually. Yeah. The guys I work with already heard this. So, but uh, apparently he, uh, hopefully I'm not going to offend any Steven Seagal fans, but, he, but apparently one of his producers uh, happened upon him uh, in his office and he was crying his, his eyes out and the guy says to him oh my god Stephen you okay he says I just I can't just give me a minute just can't do the voice but he's like just give me a minute I just well you're okay but buddy what happened and he said I I just read the most moving touching script I've ever read he says oh my god it's just gonna be your next project you know it it's gonna be my next project who wrote it he said I did <laughs> of sounding like uh, <laughs> I, was, I was tearing up not because it was so great but because it was over it's over but, but like uh, uh, like Paul and I were saying there's an ending when you put the, the end on the last one and then there's the ending of being on the, on the, the last you know when cut is last called on the last shot I told him he was going to cry a lot, you know, yeah. basically, because, yes, that you, you finish editing the show, you cry, you finish scoring the show, Michael Cicchino's beautiful music, you cry, you, 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 know, you lock the show, you cry, you go have your cast and crew party, you cry, you, you read what people are writing three years later, and you cry. <laughs> uh, Carlton, I, I actually did Carlton Cuse, everyone. Carlton, uh, Greg and Vince have now kind of been through their endings, but uh, Liz and Jay and Ian are, are not quite there yet, and hopefully not for a while. Um, what, what advice do you have for these guys about ending a beloved series as, as New Girl and uh, as Key and Peele are, and as Lost was? Um, you know, I, just, I think endings are great, and I just hope... Actually, I, I look forward to there being more endings in television. I remember Vince and I actually talked about this you know, several years ago, just how great it is to be able to end a show because narratively, you know, as a writer, you want to get to Z. Yeah. And I don't care what kind of show you're doing, there is there's an ending, I think, to the story of those characters. And I think it's really satisfying to be able to actually advance from A to Z. So I, I love the fact that, that we're in an environment now where more shows are getting a chance to end as opposed to just sort of vanishing into the vapors. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the day-to-day -day of working on a show. Um, and Liz, I want to start with you on this. Um, when, when we talked for Fast Company... I cry all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we know. 
Uh, when, when we talked for Fast Company, you told me about how you were finally able to step away a little bit and give the room a little bit of control over the series. Uh, tell me about collaborating. You know, you, you come from a background where you're a screenwriter, you work by yourself, uh, and you are thrown into the situation where you suddenly have collaborators. And you have great collaborators. Uh, tell me they're a little fine, bit about them. You know, they're all right. Uh, what I would like to know is, tell me something you've learned from your collaborators. Um, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> everything. I mean, I... I, I um, I mean, you, you, write, you write the pilot, and then you make the pilot, and you hope that it gets picked up, and then you have to build a show. And you, it's not something that you can do on your own. I mean, I, I, the show is 100% you know, created by everybody who works on it. So um, I, I also, I've, I, don't, I don't know if it's like a male-female thing, but like men, like, I don't know, like... Like emotion just kind of like go through them, you know. <laughs> they just like see, like something bad happens, and they're like, "Yeah," <laughs> and then they like keep going about their day, and it's amazing. And I like aspire to it every day because like something bad happens to me, and I'm like, <sighs> and then like later I'm like still thinking about it, and I'm, like I don't know, like. I really love working with men. It's, it's like really. An, and your co-showrunners are really two men. A learning has, process. Yeah. Has that rubbed off on you? Have you been able yeah, to kind of put I, the emotion I, aside? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, I'm I'm getting there, but the, their maleness is definitely rubbed off on me. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm gonna see. <laughs> Stands by. I just thought maybe we just wake everybody up, you know, just really get into it. Oh, um, man, I knew this was a mistake. <laughs> I'm on hiatus, so I'm like really like way too loose right now. What are you even doing with your days? I don't know. I don't honestly like know how to like be a person who doesn't work. <laughs> Well, good. We'll, we'll, we're going to uh, direct everything at you, except for this. Uh, Ian and Jay. Uh, uh, Ian Roberts and Jay Martella here from Team Pio. Um, collaboration is a huge part uh, of what you guys do, and we talked about this a little bit, uh, not just with Key and Pio, but with your directors, with your writers. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you've learned from your collaborators. Well, first of all, we don't belong here. I just want to say that. I think there was a cable night that got kind of joined with the network night. You guys love Key and Peele, right? Um, Yeah, you know, sketch sketch format is interesting. You do a lot. I mean, this season we're shooting about 86 sketches in there. So it's like shooting 86 different little stories, little films, and... uh, so it's crazy how much you work with other people, and it's constant, and everyone has to sort of be on the same page about what the joke is in each one of these sketches. And, um, and yeah, it's just uh, it's constant, you know, communication sometimes, um, you know, whispering, sometimes yelling, sometimes, <laughs> um, you know, long, long-form memos. Crazy long emails at midnight. About specific sketches? Yeah, like, you know, 
strange details that come up or like you walk on a set and the prop's wrong and that, that kind of thing. We're going to yeah. need some specific examples. Uh, I don't know. Can you... I, I don't have any specific examples. I could speak to the same first question. I'd say that where the collaborations come in the most is that we had an aesthetic idea at the beginning of this that everything would be very real, you know, like we in the acting, the sets, the way they're filmed, so that the comedy, the only thing is the, the game of the scene is the only thing that's off. And our idea is that things are funnier if there's a starker contrast between what's odd and what's recognizable. And so I'd say that's where there's been great collaboration and makeup people that get that hair, people that get that set designers that get that, a director who gets it. The writers get to be goofballs, but everybody else has to make everything look great. We've got a Academy Award nominated makeup guy does great makeup for us, and the guys get so many different looks. The guys are my dream sketch actors because they are great actors, you know. And that, to me, the the virus in modern sketch comedy is ironic detachment and people not committing and cardboard shaking sets, the equivalent of you know acting like like cardboard sets and so that's where I see great collaborations everyone really gets the aesthetic that we were looking for yeah and Liz you're, you're shaking your head you're nodding your head rather uh, is, this, is this something that you guys have learned to this grounding it um, yeah I, just, I was just agreeing with everything you were saying I think that's such a great way of looking at comedy and I, I think it's like let the, let the scene be funny not all of the stuff around it and it is funny when you're like trying to talk to describe real to somebody. You're like it's just not real enough, you know. But you're like talking. You're talking about something totally insane, like some crazy prop, and they're like, "But this doesn't exist." Like you know, I'm like, like our like we had like an episode where uh, 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 Schmidt and Nick. I just forgot the character names. Uh, they like were celebrating their friendship, and the whole place was um, uh, decorated in like it was a tin garden party but like and I was like having conversations with the designers and I'm just like I don't know like would Schmidt and Nick like have this kind of tin garden party <laughs> and you're just like this is ridiculous but I do I think that's so important I mean I know that I mean I feel like you I don't know I feel no, like I agree I thought it was yeah. really well well yeah. dis- articulated um and uh I feel like I learned that lesson when I was on Saturday Night Live, and they, that was the first time I was allowed to produce sketches. And, um, and at first, you want to um, first you want to uh, uh, you know just to be a good buddy to the crew. You want to encourage everybody's creativity. <laughs> and um, I remember <laughs> I remember at one point the uh, the one of the prop guys, you know, we had written a sketch that was just in a normal you know house or something, and or a normal uh, uh, office or something. And uh, they said, here's this phone. We got this really funny princess phone for him to answer when he has to answer the phone. And we were like, well, this, why? It's not about that. <laughs> There's nothing in the sketch that would suggest that a funny princess phone. And this guy was just, well, I'm a, I do props, and I want to be funny, too. I want to have a funny <laughs> um, <laughs> prop phone. And I realized that you had to squelch the creativity often of the people um, around you sometimes. Uh, 
I remember hearing about that, about things that were supposed to look like they were home videos and stuff, and the cameraman being nervous, this is SNL, cameraman being nervous about, they'll think that, I really think this is good. (laughs) They're going to think that you did the job. It's supposed to look right. It's supposed to look... Um, But before we move off this topic of collaborators, uh, Greg, I want to ask you about a collaborator uh, with whom you created a series Mm. uh, and talk a little bit about Parks and Rec. Uh, Is there anyone here? That was a a nightmare. Do you guys like that? Do you like that show? Why don't you tell your side? That was a difficult situation because I had a lot of good ideas and... um, you know, but I had to always, you know, there was a lot of compromise involved. Uh, why, why is that? Well, because, you know, I was working with Mike Schur, who's really one of the most, yeah, he's, he has to, you know, people love one him. One person, but, one person loves um, him. <laughs> but if you were to I think it's work wife. with him. Anyway, um, I probably shouldn't say anything. This won't be podcast for a while. Okay. You can always edit it out. Um, we're in luck, though. Uh, Mike Schur is here, you guys. <laughs> okay, Mike. <laughs> Mike. Oh, that's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> Great panel so far, guys. (laughs) I mean, I'm really nervous when they bring in someone extra that soon. (laughs) I mean, one round of questions, and we've got to bring in the reinforcements. The way it works is like there's a there's a like a red flashing light in the back, and I I couldn't hear what you were saying, but as you started talking, the light started. Is, is, that, is that vibrating thing under my seat mean I'm supposed to leave? <laughs> I, I'm curious about the pitch for Parks and Recreation. I don't think we got to talk about that when we did uh, a panel at Meltdown. It's sort uh, of in the title, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> you mean like what was the pitch or what, how did the pitch What was go? the pitch and how did you guys uh, bring it together? Well, uh, Ben Silverman was running NBC and the office was in season four and he went to Greg and said, I would like to give you another television show, and you will make 13 episodes of it, and I don't care what it is. And Greg said, okay, and uh, asked me to, to write it with him. And then we spent a lot of time at the Norms in Van Nuys uh, before the office day would start, like pitching ideas. And... Um, we had a few ideas. We had like a family show idea, and uh, there were a couple of them. But the, this, the idea, like, it was it was 2008, and the economy was falling apart, and it was becoming very clear that the government was going to be playing a very important role in people's lives in some way. And uh, we sort of had the idea. We sort of talked about it as like a comedic West Wing, where <laughs> like if the stakes of the West Wing were like China and and Russia are going to war in Kazakhstan <laughs> that the stakes of this show would be like the boys soccer team and the girls soccer team both rented the same soccer field <laughs> and uh, so that seemed good and then we we really like it was incredibly it was a, a situation we were in a situation that I to this day I can't believe how lucky we were because we really just like went to 
the network and like we told them what we were going to do and they were fine with it. They were like, great. And they really, I mean, to this day, the amount of like the kind of classic like network interference that writers have been complaining about since time immemorial has not affected us at all. Like they've been incredibly uh, creatively supportive. And at the time we, um, we were going to, uh, we, we had talked to Amy Poehler about being in the show and she then, uh, about being an A-show, before we had the idea. That was idea. the only pitch, really, was you pitching it to Amy Poehler. Yeah. What, what happened was we had, we had just talked to her because she said she was leaving, and then, then we came up with the idea, but while we were coming up with the idea, she got pregnant. And, so, and she was due to, to uh, give birth the week we would have started shooting the pilot, and the pilot was supposed to air after the Super Bowl. So there was this weird thing where we had to... But then as we developed the show, it was like, this is the only person to do this. And so we had to, we voluntarily gave up the post-Super Bowl <laughs> slots and voluntarily cut our order from 13 to 6 in order to let her, which at the time it seemed, it's crazy that we did that, a little bit. Yeah, but as long as we can keep reminding her that we did do that for her. <laughs> and her kid. Yeah. We should keep reminding her. <laughs> But so it was, it was a very uh, incredibly wonderful process to do that show, and it, I don't think we'll ever be in that, anyone will ever be in that position again, so I have no complaints at all. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about characters uh, for a moment, and um, I want to talk specifically about, you know, when you, when you pitch a series or you're going to pitch a series, you often hear your character needs to be likable. Uh, Vince, let's start with you. <laughs> Um, was there, you know, we, we've talked quite a bit on the podcast and so forth um, about, you know, sh- pitching this show and selling the show. But was there pushback in those early uh, episodes about making Walter White a likable character or at least a relatable character? Well, there was pushback from the, all the companies that's, that, uh, that, did, that passed on the show. And the, the simple pushback was, you know, was that, was not that their returning reason? the phone calls when we called them <laughs> to see if the, the pitch was going to work. But, uh, uh, no, you know, I got to say, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to have some great fun story to tell about about uh, network idiocy. You know, we've all got those, but but in this case, AMC, you know, at, at the time, uh, Mad Men hadn't quite was about to go on the air, hadn't quite gone on yet, uh, and uh, they just had just balls as big as Boston cream donuts. I mean, they were just they just. They were just Good. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, you know. They, they didn't. They didn't. Uh, you know. They weren't worried. They. They were. Uh, they, they weren't worried about him being. Only one time. One time they got a little worried, and it was uh, in uh, season two, and it was an episode in which uh, you know. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> this uh, character, uh, uh, Jesse's girlfriend, chokes to death on her own vomit. Uh-huh. You know, as as one does. And, uh, <laughs> it, uh, that Walter White watches this happen, and he doesn't do anything about it. And in fact, the first pitch was that he actually shows up and, and shoots her up himself. I'm not kidding. He shoots her up himself with a, with a hot dose of heroin, extra hot dose. And and the writers and I kicked that around, and even we thought that was too much. But then we we pitched uh, the idea of, of having Walt stand by and do nothing. This, this more likable. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
crime of omission versus commission. I think, sure. legally speaking, you can, you can parse that uh, uh, as, you, as you will. But uh, they, 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 that was the one and only time the network and, the, uh, and even the studio called up. And, but uh, to, to their credit, I'd love to tell a, a good, fun idiot story, but they, 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 they really all said, can we talk about this? Because we're nervous about it. Because we don't mind that you go in there with this character. We just think you may be doing too much too soon, which is something, indeed, I, I have been and probably will be in the future guilty of. Uh, I was going to do too much in the first season, and the writer strike saved me from, from, from throwing the kitchen sink at the show in the first uh, seven episodes. And, and so it was a valid argument, a valid concern. We talked it through, but then they, they let us do it. So. Uh, can I, I want to say something yeah, like please. this? Um, I think that's a very funny and, and very relatable to me story about how things get, you have to make them slightly more likable and try and improve the motives and everything. And we, we had a situation on The Office where um, the initial pitch, there was an episode where Michael, um, by mistake, hits Meredith in the parking lot with his car. <laughs> so the initial pitch for that was that he runs her over and kills her. <laughs> Do you remember the yes. intermediary pitch? Yeah, yeah, this <laughs> this intermediary. was the tab number one to make this more likable. Right. <laughs> was that he, he hits her. She's not dead. Right. But he, he gets worried that he's going to get in trouble, and he goes back for a tire iron. <laughs> and raises it up, not knowing he's on camera, raises it up above her unconscious head, and then kind of, like, thinks better of it. <laughs> I, I, the writers are going with this, and I pitched this to Greg, and he, and I remember it very clearly. He went, "Well, <laughs> the show will be canceled," <laughs> and it was sort of like then. That's all he said. It was like, "It's up to you if you guys, <laughs> if you guys want to end my career, go ahead." I guess. But it's a funny. I'm, I'm sure you guys have had some uh, experience like that, where you come back to the room. And they're all chortling about something they <laughs> come up with. And they're very excited, and they kind of lay it on you. And it's a, a series ender. <laughs> Liz? I, yeah, probably a lot of them aren't uh, something I should be repeating. <laughs> I think you clearly should. No, I, I, you know, they all involve choking on your own vomit. <laughs> no, I'm... Um, Carlton, stories, yeah. all right. <laughs> Carlton, you just got done uh, writing with Carrie Aaron about Norman Bates. Yes. How do you uh, how do you tackle a character like that and make him a lead in a TV series? What, what was your take on it? Um, you know, I think for us the um, the the thing that was really intriguing was that Norma Bates was this really iconic character, but we really didn't know anything about her. So more than Norman. We were sort of fascinated by who Norma Bates was, and and then we we thought, you know, the idea that everybody has about Bates, you know, about uh, Psycho is is that well, he mu- you know Norman Bates must have been sort of berated by his mother into being crazy, but what if in fact they actually have a very loving relationship, and you know, and they're they're kind of like two characters out of time, and almost like a '40s or '50s, you know. Uh, movie couple and they have this kind of wonderful relationship it's just not the most appropriate thing for you to have your closest relationship in your life be with your mother um except for me um and, uh, but the um the that 
really fascinated us as, as storytellers. We thought, okay, we can really get our teeth into this. And we sort of kind of cast it as a tragedy, you know? I mean, for us, it was the idea of being able to explore these characters was really interesting, and the idea of sort of doing it under the moniker of the Psycho franchise gave us liberty to tell a tragic story. You can't really go into the network and say, I have a fantastic tragedy I'm going to pitch you, you know? I mean, that's just, that, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. So we... You know, I think I think our goal was to sort of make the audience like these characters, despite whatever preconceptions they might have. And it's kind of doubly hard because you you sort of know, well, they're they're maybe not necessarily good people. And secondly, this isn't probably going to end well at the end. You know, when when the series draws to a close. But that was the, the challenge that we really undertook, which was like we want you to really like and care about Norman Bates and Norma Bates. And that was, you know, that that was really something that really inspired us. You know. Uh, and it, it worked. You guys do a great job on Bates Motel. Um, while we're on the topic of potentially um, unlikable characters, uh, we have one more special guest with us today. A surprise guest. You're all special. We have one more surprise guest. Uh, he's the creator of, among other things, uh, NBC's Hannibal. Please welcome Brian Fuller. Thank you for being here. Yes, thank you. My pleasure. Um, let's talk about Hannibal. Okie dokie. Brian, I love it so much. Yay, thank Not you. Not a question. <laughs> That's all I got. Uh, <laughs> tell, tell me about uh, writing this character. I mean, I remember reading the script a year ago and saying, oh my God, this guy pulled it off. Oh, thank uh, you. Where he, he made this a compelling and really kind of likable character. Uh, what was your approach to the series when, when you first kind of, when it came into your sphere? Um, well, it, it was a, a fortuitous plane ride uh, with a friend of mine who was running the studio that just acquired the rights to the character, and she asked me if I thought there was merit in doing a show, and my first thought was, oh, God, there's so many bad ways to do this. I want to make sure it's a way I want to see, so I thought I had to do it. So, um, and I think he's a, an interesting character because there is an innate likability to somebody who has zero tolerance for the rude. And, uh, and the fact that he eats them makes it even more kind of delicious to write for because he's, we get to act out fantasies of, of anybody who's slightly annoying. It's, it's different than Dexter. Who hasn't had that fantasy? I, of literally eating someone who's rude. <laughs> Um, the, so that was a lot of fun, and uh, you know Thomas Harris did all the heavy lifting. So it was kind of up to me not to screw it up because we were kind of basing the series off of three pages in Red Dragon, which was a lot of fun to kind of extrapolate what happened in those three pages. And what, what is contained in those three pages? Essentially, uh, that Will Graham, who is a criminal profiler, was so screwed up over investigating a. Uh, a, a killer called the Minnesota Shrike that he needed to go into therapy. So the buy for us was why not go into therapy with Hannibal Lecter and, you know, into the frying pan, into the, into the frying pan, and then, you know, into another pot. So uh, it, was, it was really about um, finding the right cast to, to fulfill those roles, and we, we, got, and we got very lucky on that end because I, I love Mass Mickelson, and I love him as a, 
as a James Bond villain and as One Eye and there's lots of things that he did that was so iconic that I thought if we get somebody who's iconic in their own right, then we can, you know, hold our head up proud in the in the shadow of Anthony Hopkins. There's also something really interesting happening tonally in the show, which is you know it never quite veers into camp. It never quite goes overboard. You know, you because we have to buy this world. Is this something you guys talk about in the room? Is it something you talk about with your writers? Well, absolutely. Tone is, is so tricky, and for something like Hannibal, which kind of turned campy in the later mm-hmm. films, it beca- he became you know, the, the, the one-liner, and that was definitely something that we didn't want to do because it had been done. And so essentially what they did with the character in films, we put up an orange cone and just steered around those orange cones and found our own path. This is sort of along the same lines, um, and, and honestly, anyone jump in who has an answer, but uh, it is a tone question, and it's about walking the line between comedy and not necessarily drama, but giving stakes to uh, your scene, to your episode, uh, whatever it is. And I'm thinking of New Girl, specifically Liz, um, where you know you guys have a lot of emotional scenes happen or things that have stakes to the characters, but it can also be... You know, there can be physical bits, uh, and it all seems to work in this show. Tell me about walking that line with your writers and, and how you guys keep that, maintain that tone. Um, I mean, I think that's our biggest challenge. I think that's, um, it's just the thing that I'm, I mean, it was funny when you talked about coming in the room and um, them, you know, pitching you that amazingly funny idea. And I mean, like, I feel like that happens to me all the time where I come into the room and I hear the, this idea and I'm, laughing so hard and then some part of me has to kind of say but let's focus on the emotional part of it you know I have to be the gatekeeper for the tone and it, it's sometimes kind of a bummer because I just want to follow the comedy you know like all the way to the end but um uh, I, I, I think that I don't know, I mean I think that the, the funniest stuff is the most real stuff and uh when you're doing um a show like ours uh, there are real, you know, emotions that come about. Oh, I feel really like I'm blowing it. <laughs> Someone tell her she's doing great. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, I don't, it's, it's hard. Tone is hard. Yeah. Discuss. I'll give. <laughs> I'll give you a break, uh, Vince. The same question. It's sort of the inverse. You know, there's. Despite how dark Breaking Bad can be, there's some great comic scenes in it. Thank you. Um, we try to we try to stuff it as full of we, we seriously do try to stuff it as full of humor as we as we can. I'm but still it, thinking about those cream cream balls. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, that was why I couldn't answer you that can question. Use that. <laughs> I know. Um, uh, I, it has to be a conscious choice for you though about when to go. You know, when something can be played comic. Uh, yeah, it's amazing it how much can be played comic. It, it seems, you know, not like I'm some, you know, sage of wisdom, but I mean, I, I tell you the way we do it, and it's, I mean, and I, I learned the lesson watching. Uh, I worked on the X Files for seven years, and and we had a spinoff show called Millennium, which I still to this day think was a, was a damn fine show. But it was, it was. I say this as a viewer, not as someone who worked at ten thirteen at the time. It was, it was hard to watch because it was, except for two episodes written by the wonderful Darren Morgan. Uh, as a writer we had there, uh, they were very, as one would expect when one deals with, with, with stories of, of serial killings, that they were very dark indeed, and they were hard to watch 
for their unrelenting darkness. And I figured, well, here we are uh, doing a show about a guy dying of cancer, cooking crystal meth. And it's going to be real, and it's as real as we can make it. But we, if we are wise, we will leaven it with humor every possible chance we get. And, and in, in hindsight, it's surprising how much uh, drama, how much humor drama can bear, even the darkest of dramas, it seems to me. I think the trick is to, uh, you know, if there is one, is, uh, you know, these characters are never trying to be funny. They're just, they, and, and desperation is funny, you know, and, and so there's a lot of desperation in Breaking Bad. We just, we, we, we find the, 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 the funny, the way the audience can laugh at it at certain moments, and, and we, just as long as it's real, we'll, 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 we'll get it in there as, as much as we humanly can with the, with the caveat being that it's got to, it's got to be earned. It's got to, I mean, it's got to, it's got to feel real. It's got to come from a real human place of, of, of these characters not trying to be funny. Certainly, especially not in the most dire of moments. Right. So I think that's if there's a trick. And, and also, sort of taking like you take these larger than life situations and somehow make them believable, like the giant magnet in the U-Haul. Like, I mean, I was just like, "This is awesome!" Like, God, I just wanted like, and I, so now I get to ask you like. How did that happen? Like, who pitches the idea, like, we're going to erase this laptop by driving a U-Haul next to the building with a giant magnet in it? And you go, like, that's awesome, or is that your idea? I, you know, I, I, we really have a group mind in the room. We did. It's over now, sadly. But uh, we had a group mind in the room where, where, in hindsight, I forget who said what. But I think, in that case, that, that, was, that was mine. But... but uh, <laughs> But I remember uh, Gordon Smith, my wonderful assistant, who I think is here tonight, is uh, he researched uh, a lot, and Jen Carroll, uh, the other wonderful assistant, they're also here tonight. They researched to see if this was possible. Uh, there's a, actually, I'm going off on a tangent here, but actually, there's I got to be on MythBusters, which was the coolest <laughs> thing in the world. Like the coolest thing in the world. I think it's going to air sometime in June or July. And, and they tested not that one. They wanted to test that one. But they pretty much told me we'd like to test it because it'd be fun on the show. But I can tell you right now, it wouldn't work. Because <laughs> yeah. these guys really know the stuff. But, yeah. uh, the guy from Mythbusters but, but, is here. This <laughs> is fun making this stuff up. But, yeah. but I, I was, I was, I was seriously. A lot of the best ideas. I don't remember who came up with them. A lot of them definitely were not me. But that one happened to be. But but it, it's <laughs> don't try it at home. It's not going to work. But, yeah, it was great. Uh, <laughs> You, you bring up, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of comedy that tragedy uh, can bear or that drama can bear. And I wonder about the, the inverse of that uh, from Mike and Greg and Liz and Ian and Jay. Is there a certain amount of drama that comedy can bear or that it needs? I think so. <laughs> um, the, if you look back at ep- early episodes of The Office particularly, uh, a lot of them are very... Uh, <coughs> They're very serious. Like they're, they're, there's long stretches where there aren't jokes, really. And in the early days, a hey, lot of them. I know. I got it. I've got this. I've got this. I can, I can buy this back. Uh, but what, like the humor was coming out of like situations instead of like the kind of set up punchline kind of thing. And I think there were also a, a large number of people, especially in the early days, whose entry point to the show wasn't the obnoxious boss or the kind of crazy 
heavy metal obsessed beat farmer, uh, <laughs> but the very normal uh, man and woman who were kind of in love with each other and couldn't express it in traditional ways. And um, that was a very good lesson to me as a young young lad. <laughs> and uh, I think that's what that's in the DNA of Parks and Rec too. And I think will always be in anything that I write is like the the re when it's real people doing real things. Um, the, the sort of DNA of those shows is like, well, what do, what do people care about? They care about their jobs and their friends and their relationships. Like, that's really all anyone cares about in essence. And the, like, two of those three things aren't often very funny. Like, your friends, you joke around with your friends, but, like, your job isn't inherently funny and your relationships hopefully aren't super funny. <laughs> and so, like, that, it just seems like that, I, I we, have, we have a problem on our show now, which is, like, the, everybody, our show is, Parks and Rec is always almost getting canceled, like constantly. And so we have written a lot of like things, like stories for people where we were in a rush to make them happy. And so that's why like <laughs> Leslie and Ben uh, on the show, Amy Poehler's character and Adam Scott's character got married in the middle of the year because we were like, we don't have a lot of time. We might <laughs> pull the plug at any moment. So... Uh, so our problem is that right now on the show we just started breaking stories for season six and like everyone is super happy. Everyone is like this. Just there's there's pregnancies and there's couples and they love each other and everything's great and there's like zero conflict and they uh, so that like that but it's because we sort of elbowed out room in the show and made time for serious things for like things that would actually matter to these real people. And I, I don't know, I, I think it's, I don't know any other way. And like, it's something New Girl does incredibly well, I think. My wife writes for the show, full disclosure. Um, also, She's Liz amazing. is right there, so there's two people. <laughs> yeah. Praise the show, but it's, it's, they do the same thing, you guys do the same thing. You like, there's room in the show that you, you make that time. You take chunks of very precious time to do like serious emotional things, and I think it makes... I think every show that does that is stronger for it. Well, I think we're trying... I mean, we're, we're trying to make... Uh, actually make it funnier, you know, in the long run, because I think um, the way you said comedy, you kind of needed the comedy to, like, leaven the... I used that right, leaven, right? Yeah. <laughs> the stakes of the... Um, but I think... <laughs> I, feel, I feel like something isn't funny unless the stakes are very high. And so a lot of the times in sitcoms, I think, in my... <laughs> past experience is like <laughs> you're trying to kind of ratchet up the stakes and it, when it feels false it's just not funny I mean we had an episode this season uh, uh, that was about a bathtub and it was like it was like just like wanted like to bathtub and like I remember I was like sitting I was sitting in the editing room and I was like this isn't where I I, I had the entire time had been like killing myself over this episode and I told my friend who like works on another show I was like god I can't figure this episode out and he was like what's it about and I was like Jess wants a bathtub <laughs> and he was like <laughs> he was like yeah okay <laughs> it's not funny so I mean I think like I, I, you have to have emotional stakes for something to be funny and so I think that is true it's like you have to build room for that I think you can also go too far. I mean, we've definitely on the show had moments where I've been like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, it's like, we can't, like, do an episode about, like, all the, everybody's daddy issues all the time, you know? But I, so, but I mean, you're, like, you're just constantly trying to walk that line, like you said. I mean, and it's, and it's, you are making mistakes all the time, too, but they're useful because you're learning 
kind of how far you can go. How, how much drama can you do in sketch comedy? <laughs> None. <laughs> None, actually. <laughs> We've been enjoying this conversation. Uh, well, it's good. You, you've made me realize how to break into uh, situation comedy. <laughs> I know what I need. I need a heart. You guys should do one. Of being like, like emotionless, kind of borderline autistic drones. <laughs> I, I once ran into um, a, a studio executive we dealt with on a script, oh and she God. sat me down in a positive way and said, "It was so good, but you just really you you just can't get in touch with the emotion." Like she felt sorry for me, like I was broken. <laughs> And I and, and I had tried. We thought we tried so hard to, to put all this emotion to this. And she sat me down, unsolicited, kind of. You know, I just we loved the script. You just, you, but you couldn't do it. <laughs> I, yeah, so, and so yeah. we've we've gotten the show that we deserve. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just moment to moment. Try to be as funny as you possibly. Look, you know can. what I think our thing is. A different thing we have, and if, if you ask me for examples, I don't know if I can pull one out, but you try to have them be about something, you know. So all the so many of the scenes deal with issues, you know, political issues, relationship issues, sexuality, stuff like that, and and that's like so we have that thing that's of states, I to mean, do, like, yeah, 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 we have that thing that. to do something where you say something you feel. And it's got to be funny still, you know. And sometimes you get—I remember, you know—I've had—I haven't had that on this show, but I've had that in my life where someone gets something they really care about. You're like, oh, geez, just write a speech or <laughs> write an essay. That's just not funny, you know. But uh, our writers do a great job of—I think—of doing things where—and and then you have to make sure that you tweak it so the audience knows where, because you're, you're mocking something, but make sure they know what. I can think of one example we did. It was about, um, we have this scene, and it's going to be in this next season, about there's this gay co-worker who's just being overly sexual around this guy. And the guy keeps saying, will you knock it off? Oh, you can't deal with me being gay. And the guy's, no, it's not that you're gay, it's that this is inappropriate. And so you can do that whole scene, and it's, but you've got to make sure, oh, but we're not being anti-gay. And then someone had the great idea coming at the end, the guy who's been saying, will you knock it off? And being accused of being homophobic, his boyfriend comes to get him for lunch. You're like, ah, now we made... And the guy is left with his last thing being, oh, I get it. I'm not persecuted. I'm an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) So something like that, you get to say something. It's like, you know, because... So I guess that what that's dealing with is sometimes people defend their aberrant behavior behind... It's like playing the race card or playing whatever, playing the gay card. You want to write a scene about that. And so you get to say something. It's hilarious through the whole thing because the guy's being inappropriate. And at the end, you put the button on it that makes sure the audience knows where your sentiments lie. We're not snowing, not gay people, inappropriate people. I don't want to hear about, I don't want to hear about your heterosexual. Oh, I nailed this girl last night. I was in her this far. <laughs> seems like a good place to take a break. Uh, please give a round of applause for our panelists. Uh, we're going to hear a couple more songs from Sarah Watkins, uh, and then we're going to turn it over to you guys. Uh, so here's Sarah Watkins once again. Hey. I, um... 
I love listening to this panel, and I love being here, and I, I love that it gave me a good excuse to learn a bunch of new songs and a place to play them. song by my friend Rhett Miller <clears throat> and um, I love this song Started to 
everybody uh, all right you have questions let's bring up the house lights a little bit Alec please hey give Alec a round of applause hi thanks for uh, coming in tonight I was wondering um, how do you guys feel about the internet networks like uh, Hulu Amazon Netflix and um, would you guys ever consider creating original content for those for those networks anyone who wants to jump in Brian says yes. Yeah, let's say they gave uh, David Fincher like $100 million to make two seasons of television. The answer is yes. <laughs> have, have any of you uh, worked in, in online uh, programming before? I apologize that I don't know. No? Well, I've, UCB has its own yeah. content site. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we, we've had a never... Oh, you know, I'm, I just... Re- forget it. <laughs> I think I was about to say something I'm not supposed to. Okay. Oh. You sure you don't want to say it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you too? You were about to say something that you should Well, I don't know. I have I have a crotchety old person's comment, but um it seems to me like uh people are getting in the habit of watching whole series in big gulps and I, I, I don't see how that works for the old model, you know, because uh, if you were to premiere a series on a traditional network and everybody was like, oh, I'm going to wait till the end of the first season or the end of the <coughs> series and just watch them all over two weekends, then it would immediately get canceled because nobody would be watching. So I think it's like it might suddenly flip over and it'll all be on Internet or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's something too, and Vince and Carlton, you guys can probably, you guys can probably talk to this. Where you know your your series gained gained viewers even as uh, as they got older. 
uh, due to these people downloading series into their brains in the first couple seasons. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I, I, everything Greg said is, is true, and and the old the old the old model does seem to be in in in, in jeopardy. Uh, and there's you know I grew up watching. You know, when I was a kid, we had three, three and a half channels, you know, back in Farmville, Virginia, this little town I lived in, and, you, and we didn't have VCRs and any of that stuff, and it's, it's like, I still don't know how to use a TiVo, practically, I still watch stuff live, I'm, I'm, I am that set in my ways, but on the other hand, I think uh, this, this binge viewing, which we didn't really have a phrase for three or four years ago, it feels to me, saved Breaking Bad, I mean, we would have, I believe, Absolutely, we would have been canceled if not for uh, Netflix and for iTunes uh, and for, uh, I guess now Amazon streaming, all these other VOD uh, setups. Um, they, they grew our, they allowed a, our audience to grow, to catch up. So I am all, I am four square for binge viewing, never having done it myself, perhaps never will. Well, uh, you, you know, somebody came up to me the other day and said, oh, Mr. Cuse, I, I really love Lost. I went into my room with a large bag of marijuana and I watched the entire show in a week. <laughs> Just saying, now you've got some free time. That's true. That's true. All right, we, we have another question here. I was wondering, how do you write your ending so it justifies the whole series and the beginning and so it feels really inevitable and believable? How do you deal with that kind of pressure and how do you write that? That question is not for me. On Pushing Daisies, we didn't know we were going to end, so it was a matter of scraping together whatever found footage we could find from previous episodes and writing a narration and hoping it was emotionally poignant. Did, did it work for you, do you, do you think? Were you satisfied? No, no. no I, was, I was pissed off. <laughs> well, I mean... Uh, uh, I would say that uh, there's a little bit of a magician's trick kind of involved with that in that um, you're not writing the ending until years after the beginning, hopefully, and uh, you have the luxury to go back and remember stuff that's in the beginning and then make, them, make it look like you planned it the whole time. <laughs> and for some reason, a lot of times people assume that the ending, like a movie, was somehow you know, written at the same time as the beginning or something. And, and that uh, you were just super lucky that that great scene from the ending was set up by something from the pilot, but you know, you certainly had a long enough time to remember the pilot and call it back. So I don't know how impressive it is. Do you, do you find that? Greg stole my answer yet again. <laughs> That's exactly right. No, I mean, it's, uh, we, we get a lot of credit on, on Breaking Bad for people think, man, we planned it out way in advance, and it's exactly what Greg said. You, you, it, we are very lucky. Cable, we are lucky in cable. There's just as the, the, the distribution of talent and network in cable is, is identical. Just as many smart, excellent writers and working networks. If they got to work, do twice as many episodes in much fewer in, in much less uh, amount of time. The 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 the, the uh, wonderful uh, luxury we have in cable, uh, and, and that I've been lucky to have on, on Breaking Bad, is that we have an, a crazy amount of lead time. And we get to uh, 
in, in answer to the original question, and I hope it will be satisfying. If you watch Breaking Bad and you watch the final eight, I hope you will think we pulled it off. But but what we did was we sat around in a writer's room for for thousands of man hours, and uh, all seven of us, and we tried to play a game of chess in which uh, we said, you know, if we move the character from here to here to here, what happens? What's what's the counter move? What's Essentially, we said to ourselves, what are all the possible endings we could come up with, and then what is the ending that satisfies us the most? And in the process, like Greg was saying, what can we mine from the past uh, so that it echoes, so that it resonates in the present, in the, in the now, in the final episode or two or eight in this case, so that it feels like we planned it from the, from the get-go? And when, in yeah. fact, we... That's no, like an improv exactly. trick, right? Isn't it, Ian? Yeah. Ian, like a callbacks or Callbacks, like... yeah, wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the truth is, is that you don't know very much about your show when you start, and you need to have those tens of thousands of hours of conversations about the show, and then you should just cut to black. LAUGHTER my question is, um, has the audience ever responded to something you've written or a character that you've written in a way you didn't intend, be it positive or negative? And did you ever, like, try and compensate for that or just say, screw them? <laughs> or both? Well, you're always kind of saying screw them about everything. But um, on, uh, that was exactly the experience of Parks and Recreation in the first season. Um, we designed this character who was really um, optimistic and forward-thinking and believed very deeply that human beings are, like, good and, and wanted to... and loved her hometown and wanted to work really hard to make it better. And our idea was that she just didn't know how to, like, navigate the political waters that she was in in order to make that happen. And then the... We shot our pilot, and then we just shot episode two, like, a week later, because, again, Polar had gotten herself knocked up and, uh, and we didn't have any time and the pilot aired and everyone was like oh she's a ditz and Amy Poehler's a lot of things but she's not a ditz and the character was not designed in any way for her to be a ditz um, I personally felt it was a little bit of like blonde actress persecution that like people saw a, a cute uh, blonde haired lady and was like oh she's a ditz but regardless you can't ignore that's a horrible. That's, that's really exactly wrong for the character that we had imagined, so you can't just go ask ah, Groom because then you're dead. So we did a couple adjustments, um, but th the most important of which was we changed the way that everybody else reacted to her. Like, the idea originally was that she, everyone was going to kind of be like, oh, don't make us work. We're bureaucrats who don't care. And she was going to kind of drag them kicking and screaming into whatever she was doing. And then we just changed it to have them, their reactions to her be like, yeah, she's amazing, she does everything, she's incredible, and we all acknowledge that she's incredible. And just that change of like the way the kind of mirror of the other characters reflected her back to the audience made a massive difference. And suddenly, without changing her that much, or the things that she did or said, the character took on a very different tone. Um, it happened with The Office, too, that like we, after the first season... Um, Steve Carell was in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, which some of you might have seen, and uh, he was so lovely and charming and, and likable and winning in that movie that Greg was like, we need to make Michael Scott like 20% more 
like a, approachable as like a human being, and all the other writers were like, "Screw you, old man!" Like, <laughs> if you see the British office, you're gonna ruin the show. And, and we all like secretly were in our office going, "Like, he's gonna ruin it. It's so cool, man!" Like, smile. Like, that sing that one decision is the difference between the office lasting ten episodes and two hundred. Like that. Also, Steve like lost twenty five pounds and and looked better. But uh, but seriously, like that, I still feel like that one. We that was a big battle at the beginning of season two, and it was honestly it was the absolute difference. We had people like in that Dundee's episode at the beginning of season two. He was exactly the same dude. He was exactly as annoying and obnoxious, and and like had a massive blind spot. But at the very end of that episode. Uh, like another random dude in the bar that he's in starts like making fun of him, and you just see like Jim and Pam and other people go like, "Hey, don't make fun of him. He's our that's our boss. He's our friend," and they kind of end up sticking up for him, and just that those tiny little things just make a huge difference. And the office definitely would have gotten canceled, I think, if we hadn't done that. If uh, crazy old man Daniels hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Another question here. Um, I'm curious about the process. You've all created wonderful shows, but do you inevitably become drawn to one particular character in your show that you feel like, that you really like, and then really give, I guess, all of your creative juices to that person? And in in relationship to that, the characters that you, not that you don't like, but like, for me, Skylar is so, I so dislike her, yet she's so important in, in Breaking Bad. And I'm wondering, like, do you write her? Does a certain writer in your writer's room sort of take on those characters? And that applies to, like, all the shows. Who Do you, you know, become beloved to one particular character? And who takes care of the other? What, what do you, what do you uh, dislike about <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting. I, actually, seriously, what... Uh, in a, what, in a word. Try to put it in a one sentence. She's infuriating. <laughs> but, but why? Is, is, is it because... She just, is it because she's getting in the way of the protagonist? Like, that's the tip of the iceberg. In my <laughs> like, there's just so many, her reactions, so, and so, so much of, I'm just so new to the is show. Is it because, because she's standing in the way of his further criminality, or is it because she's yeah, not? Yeah, like, she's just not cool. I guess that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and it's okay. I'm not, I'm not a... I hear it a lot. I hear people yeah. dislike Skylar, and it's interesting because, to me, and, and actually the answer to the question I get for me anyway is uh, is is that uh, I love all these characters. The character I love the least is probably Walter White, but uh, because he's he's, I understand why he does the things he does. But but my understanding of why he does what he does is that he is a deeply flawed individual. I mean, he he makes terrible choices born of pride and and this long ago crushed ego that, uh, that, that makes him do the th- that makes him want to feel like a man to feel potent he feels anything but deep down inside it seems to me not to be like times to Freud <laughs> Skyler this your dude man Skyler if I'm going to be real candid here Skyler started to lose me when she started to play along with his game and, and, and help him with the money laundering I'm not arguing with you. I, I think it's just. I think it's interesting. So many folks dislike her, and I and I and I wonder if it's because they you have to invest in a character like the, the lead character of the show. The, the lead character of our show is the protagonist who has step by step become the antagonist. But it's a very human thing, it seems to me, to uh, to 
to have to sympathize or empathize or, or otherwise buy into his his thing. Otherwise, you got to tune out. And and I, I think that I think it's very interesting. I'm not. I think it's. I love Skyler actually. I she when she loses me is when she when she's not true to herself. But uh, I love all the characters, least of all Walt. But I still love him too. I love writing for him. I love writing for all of them. That's just me. I don't mean to hog the mic. But I, uh, can, can I ask you a question? Um, I've heard people say that about certain characters, like that they're characters that you love to hate. And I've never figured out, like, is that because they don't realize that there's secret, lovable characteristics about them? Like, you know, like, um, you know, I don't know, like, the, 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 you know, uh, Tony, well, Tony Soprano, who is that family for man or something, as well as being a mob boss, but you don't notice the family man part because you're concentrating on the mob boss or something like that? Or is it, do you think it's the, that there's certain just really energetic hateful characters that are fun to watch or I think we love the Darth Vaders and the J.R. Ewings and the you know J.R. Ewing I, I was not I know enough of Dallas to know the, I'm talking the original I, I'm, I'm not up to date on the new one but J.R. Ewing <laughs> was a guy who knew who he was and he was okay with who he was and he was the bad guy and he was like god damn it I got my get my boots on I got my hat on I'm gonna I'm gonna be the bad guy and I'm gonna screw everything you know I'm gonna take over every company I'm gonna and I think people like the guy who knows who he is. Oddly enough, it's amaz- it amazes me people like Walter White as much as they like him because he doesn't know who he is. The only one of the few characters on our show who really is comfortable in his own skin is uh, Saul Goodman or uh, the, the lawyer or, or Mike, the character uh, the, the cleaner we we, we uh, killed off last season. Uh oh, spoiler. Alert. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting. I don't know. I think a lot about that. I, I think I think the bad guys we love to. Hate like the J.R. Ewings, they have panache. They 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 know who they are. They're comfortable in their own skin. Walt no, is no I mean bad. they're also un- they're inherently unpredictable, so they're more interesting. Okay, you know? that's good. And I think that you know. <laughs> so uh, there's a actually, writer on our show who, when Tiger Woods was going through his whole thing uh, with all those ladies that he was uh, enjoying, uh, there was a writer on our show who was like, he should come. He was going to have that press conference, and there was a writer on our show that who was like. No, it was Dave King. Well, you and Dave King probably yeah. have the same idea. <laughs> the idea was he should walk out and literally put on a black cowboy hat and go like, yeah, fuckers. Yeah, this is me. Deal with it. I'm a, I'm a terrible dude. I'm super good at golf. And then just like drop the mic and walk out. I think like there's something like that... Like, I hated his, I just, I dislike him now. And there's a way in which if he had done that, I wouldn't have liked him, but I would have been like, that's kind of (laughs) cool. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I'm a terrible, like, you didn't know it, but this whole time you've been rooting for me. I'm a deeply evil, awful guy. I think those people are compelling. My five-year-old son loves Darth Vader. He has nightmares about Darth Vader every night, but that's his favorite character, and all of his friends love Darth Vader. Like, Luke is kind of boring. He's like a nice guy. He's like, I want to... But Darth Vader is is better. He's a better character. It's why, like, the Joker is better than Batman. It's why, like, that's just the deal. (laughs) Batman's boring, and so is Superman. Deal with it. I hope this movie's great. Superman is the single most boring character in the history of Western fiction. 
except for a green rock, and every episode is who's gonna give him the green rock? <laughs> and he throws the green rock into the sun and everything's fine. It's boring. The cool characters, the most compelling characters are always the, like, awful, flawed, tortured people who you kind of try to figure out a way to root for. My opinion. Brian, you don't want to weigh in on that, do you? Uh, I, I think, you know, the same goes for Hannibal. He's fascinating because he eats people and knows he eats people and, except for the other characters in the show. And it's, it, there's a likability to that because he's kind of like, yeah, I eat people and I just serve them to you. And you were seconds. You know, there are a lot of would-be writers and writers with kind of one foot in the door here and listening to the podcast. Um, how did you guys get your representation? How did you guys get a foot into the Hollywood system uh, to find the success that you have today? Anyone who wants to jump in. What about you guys? Okay, I'll do one. Um, mine was just, it's probably not average, but I was in a sketch group, and so I just got taken along with the whole sketch group, and we all got representation. So I never had to do the thing of putting my resume out to everybody and pictures to everybody. They saw the group, probably loved Amy Poehler, and said, oh, we've got to get the rest of these guys to get her, <laughs> and signed the group. So, yeah, I don't, think, I don't know if mine's that helpful. <laughs> well, every story is different. You know, we've learned that doing these podcasts. Every, every story is different. Each one is instructional in its own way. Uh, what about the rest of you? How did you find your agents? How did you, you, know, how did you find your, your first thing to sell? Can, can I just say, we've all got a different story, I'm sure, on how we got our first agent. And, and I, I, when I was trying to get my first agent, I thought that was the end-all, be-all. And the only advice I can give is forget about getting your first agent. Sell your first script or short film or, or presentation or whatever. Because you, you're going to have to sell that first one on your own. And then the agents will come calling. I mean, I had an agent. My story was that I had uh, a woman who became my agent who... Uh, uh, I had a script. I got it to her uh, through uh, my, my college writing professor. She read it. She liked it. She went to the Monday. To, she, she gave the script to all the other people in her in her uh, 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 at the time her uh, agency. She came, called me on Monday, said everyone else read it. We had the Monday morning meeting. No one else liked it. So, and then I wound up uh, uh, entering it in a contest. Contest, the best advice I have. Good ones, Nichols Fellowship stuff like that. Legit screenwriting competitions. I entered it in this little tiny contest in my home state of Virginia. It won, luckily, uh, luckily for me as well. Uh, one, of the, one of the judges uh, who, who uh, it, it took place at the University of Virginia, this is 1989, one of the judges was, was Mark Johnson, who was doing a favor to the folks at UVA because he was an alum, alumnus. Uh, he liked the script. He called me up. He said, I'm interested in what else you got. Then the woman who became my agent called up and said, hey, this is your agent calling. <laughs> it's, it, you got to sell that first one on your own. You really do. Doesn't, forget about the agent. Get, get the first one sold. Get, get that foot in, your, in the door yourself the first, first time out. Uh, out of curiosity, uh, from a couple of you, Greg, what was the first thing you got paid to write? Do you remember? Um, yeah. Uh, um, Okay. <laughs> so uh, I, I came, got in through sketch comedy, and it was a show called Not Necessarily the News. Oh, um, yes, thank you. Uh, didn't. 
didn't have much to do with it other than getting hired there. But, um, uh, you know, I had a very uh, charismatic writing partner when I started, which was Conan O'Brien. So kind of like being hooked up with Amy, it's like it's certainly helpful. You see, you see like what a charismatic and articulate person I am. <laughs> it was very helpful to have, um, you know, a very uh, ambitious, funny person to be your writing partner. Um, but uh, in, in those days, it was HBO, when HBO was like the crap network that had um, gratuitous uh, sex and stuff. The, the, the HBO had everything. It was very lowbrow in those days. And there was like a show called First in Ten. That was their big show, if you remember, which was had a lot of no reason people's shirts were off <laughs> for women. So much has changed. <laughs> Wasn't as good the nudity back then, um, but you know they, they had these uh, these like uh, it was like a three week it was a three week contract and we were a team so it was like the very cheapest possible way you could get hired we were splitting one cable three week salary and um, you know I don't know so I don't know if there's any lesson in that but uh, uh, here's another question. Do you have any advice uh, for when you're writing a pilot, uh, how to, where to draw the line and where, where you're building the world versus focusing on the story of one character? I guess, how, how would, do you have any advice for building that world in the first episode while still limiting yourself to a pilot story? I think the, the best thing to do when you're writing a pilot is to really be aware of yourself as the first person in the audience you have to write what you would want to see and what you would want to happen to these characters because if you're trying to anticipate what somebody else wants you're never going to be right it's you're just setting yourself up to go you have to have to really respect yourself as an audience member and write what you want to see so what is the alchemy of the characters versus the world that you're creating has to be to your taste and what you like to watch because there's so many different ways to write a spec or write a script of any kind and if you're you're trying to anticipate what someone else wants you're doomed what you have to do is like respect yourself as an audience member I think the that main character is the most important part of a pilot I feel like pilot stories are sort of I don't know. They're hard because it's not actually what anyone really cares about. <laughs> you know, it's like they just want to meet the characters. I, I, I guess I would say to not get so caught up in the. I mean, I, I, as a comedy writer, obviously people care about stories and drama a little more. <laughs> no, I right. did it. I bailed no, on my own right. thing. <laughs> Making fun of me backstage, but um, I, I think you, I think to, to, if you get that voice of that main character, people like latch on to that. And there's another thing, though. There's no. It's not like there's a, a panel of um, uh, intelligent, uh, sensitive, uh, you know, all-powerful, all-knowing people who judge the pilot scripts, and the ones that are good enough get made into TV shows. <laughs> I think that's that would be be really nice to believe that. <laughs> You know, I think that it's it, Superman. It's, it's <laughs> but it's like some kind of weird, um, you know, constantly shifting, 
lock that you, you push your script in and, and if the right executives and the right everything suddenly line up, they'll, they buy it and you actually have a, a show and then later you can go back and talk about how great you are. But, you know, it's because some people love, like I am not recently figuring out the NBC guys because I've shot three pilots didn't go anywhere recently. But, um, you know, some people like pilots where there's a great launching story and then other times, like I would say, you might say to yourself, uh, figure out that, that pilot story and then think about what your next few episodes are and then take the funniest of the next few episodes and write that one and throw out the pilot story. You know, because you always over-explain everything in, in the pilot and more fun to come in in the middle of it. We threw out our pilot story. I feel like I yeah. told you this. I, or it's, I, I, I threw out, we threw out our pilot story uh, two days before we shot the pilot, and we rewrote it where um, it was it was Schmidt. This is not, it's not funny, so you don't have to laugh. It was like Schmidt uh, <laughs> was having like a, a, an actual sausage party, so he was like serving sausage. <laughs> it was a Wild West actual sausage party and we were like this is the pilot story <laughs> two days before we shot it and you know I was like, I've told this story, but you know it's bad when like the executives come to your office <laughs> and they came to our office and they started like rolling up their sleeves <laughs> and we were like oh no and they were like okay let's let's uh let's go back to that script that we picked up <laughs> like three months ago I don't know. I mean, I feel like I think pilot stories are really hard. Yeah, uh, right, because you, yeah. you, you want it to be funny, right, Right, and to have an episodic funny story, but nobody's ever heard of anybody else. Right. So then you're constantly trying to shove all this information in. Yeah. You know, like, and it leads to all this weird dialogue, like, well, you know I'm your brother. <laughs> Another thing is have everyone be really good at their jobs. <laughs> that was something I learned from that network yeah. television. I was like, if, if you choke, if you're gonna have a character choke on her own vomit, at least she's good at her job. <laughs> <laughs> but then don't worry, you said something about world building. Don't worry about building the world. These guys said this is the exact right answer. Make the character interesting to you. Make that character he or she interesting, understandable, relatable as a human being. Doesn't mean good or bad or likable, but relatable. And and the world will create itself with the help of the writers you hire and with the help of the fact that you are lucky if, if, if once the show gets ordered, knock on wood, you're lucky to get to work with, hopefully, when you put them together, a great bunch of writers who all of you pulling the rope and the right in the same direction will come up with this world Minute by minute, beat by beat, episode by episode. Like the beginning of Les Mis. When yeah. like... <laughs> Everything worked out really well for those people. <laughs> uh, another question over here. We have time for two more quick ones. Yes, hello. Uh, since this is an industry of kind of who you know and the context that you make, uh, what are your thoughts or advice for someone who wants to kind of submit themselves for consideration for a writer's assistant position? Those aren't necessarily jobs that you can go into the Disney Careers website and apply for. So just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. See if you can win a writer's assistant content. <laughs> oh, no, that was terrible. Uh, 
We're, you guys all have great writer's assistants and assistants. Uh, and please give them a round of applause. A lot of them are here right now. Mike, Greg, Vince, and Carlton, where did you guys find your assistants and writer's assistants? Honestly, a lot of those positions are filled by the production wing of a show. Um, our line producer on Parks and Rec, like, had met, you know, a, from producing other things, had met a lot of, like, young, hungry people, and it's a, it's a weird, it is like a weird thing where, like, it was like, oh, our line producer knew all these people. Where, where did he meet them? Well, someone else met them somewhere and then introduced them to him. Well, where did they meet them? And you can just go back forever until they were like babies. And then like, someone met a baby. It was like, that guy seems competent. Well, uh, I, writer's assistants' jobs are very, uh, they're, they're very hard. And they have, they're very, it requires a great deal of just like acumen and responsibility which are qualities that writers themselves do not often possess, and a lot of them are filled. Uh, a lot of them are filled by the by the uh, the line producer who just has met a lot of like capable people or has. And there, our line producer Morgan Sackett on Parks and Rec is always like interviewing people. Like people will call him and say like, "You should meet this kid. He's just out of college, or she's just here from you know whatever." So I I trust their taste. I trust his taste specifically. In terms of like just because it's not like a, it's not a it's not like strictly speaking a fun job. You get to hang out in the writers' room, which depending on the room can be fun or not. But it's incredibly grueling, and you have to do a lot of research, and you have to also like you know sometimes the room will write for like a really long time, and it's like eleven o'clock, and we'll go home, and then the writer assistants have to stay and clean up the horrible mess we made, and like organize our our weird script and like f- format it and all that stuff. So. It's a, it's a job that, to me, is better suited to someone who's coming up through the production end as opposed to the, to the creative end. Um, but we've had, that being said, we've had both. Sometimes, sorts. yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. It's a line producer's hire often. But uh, sometimes when you're starting a show and you are hiring a staff and you've hired all of the people and there's one person who's never had a writing job before who has a funny <coughs> script and you wish you could hire them but you don't have the money to hire them as a writer, sometimes they become a writer's assistant. That's true. So sometimes it comes in from a script, but mostly it's it's from a PA. Trying to think of yeah, any extra good advice. Yeah, all that's true. I mean, uh, Gordon and Jen are here in the audience, I'm pretty sure. Uh, they just were presented to me. <laughs> <laughs> By uh, some wonderful producers that I have, and, and, and uh, I, 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 the, the, the okie doke sort of the cliche answer I got to think is, is nonetheless contains within it some truth, which is get yourself out there and network. Uh, there, uh, you are in the city for it, Los Angeles. I mean, uh, it's a hell of a lot easier network and joining writers, uh, writing, writing groups. Uh, 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 you know, going by UCLA or USC, looking on the on the uh, bulletin boards, saying, "It's all shit." I say bulletin boards. This is like I'm so old. <laughs> all this stuff's on the computer now. I wish I had better advice than that. But I, I, I the, the best person to answer that question would be some of the writers' assistants. I would yeah. thank who are in the audience. Find, find them in the courtyard afterward. Uh, we have time for one more here. Um, I just wanted to know when you have like, how do you manage the like reveal of a character or like a big story point when you ha- when like that mystery is part of the appeal of the show? 
I think the broader question is, uh, you know, in unveiling stuff or even in making big character moves, and Liz, we talked a little bit about this with Nick and Jess, uh, you know, how do you decide the time is right? How does the room to get, come together to decide these story points? I, you know, I, I think that that's just a, it's a feel thing. I think that, you know, when you're a showrunner, you have this kind of intuition. You're kind of relying on your own sort of compass and bearing as to what, when the time is right. And so in the case of Lost, we knew... A lot. We, we we sort of knew what our moves were, but I my my metaphor for it was always like taking a road trip. We knew we were going to go to Denver, and then we were going to go to uh, Chicago, and then eventually we were going to end up in you know Boston or whatever. But, but every day we got up, we decide whether we were going to take the interstate or the rural back roads, and we would kind of create detours along the way. But we knew that we were going to we were going to get to these certain places, and you just you just kind of feel your way there, and um, and you know you you. There, there's sort of a certain amount of dramatic momentum that, that kind of guides you to that decision or your actor gets a DUI. <laughs> All right, one, one last question here. Okay, a nostalgia question. I'm not asking what your favorite episodes were, but I'm asking if you could pick one episode that you feel really best expresses you know, what you were trying to say in the show, past and present, that goes for Carlton and Brian as well, you know, pushing daisies and lost. If you could pick one episode for somebody that's never seen the show, if they're just going to see that one episode to get a sense of what the show's about and what you were trying to say. I mean, for me, it would be the constant episode of Lost that... Um, which, which, was, which was crazy because in a... In a in a room situation where you're under an incredible time clock to produce episodes every week, we spent five weeks breaking the story and literally drove all the writers insane trying to make all the pieces of it work. But it's probably, I'm, you know, it's the thing I'm most proud of that I've, that I've ever written. I have a better answer for Hannibal than I do Pushing Daisies just because I, I would say the pilot for me was such a, on, on Pushing Daisies was such a, a, a satisfying creative experience where I felt like, oh, I, you know, there's a horcrux there. I broke off the chunk of my soul and it's in there. So don't destroy that script. Nerd! I've got wands and a tie from uh, Griffin. Uh, but for, for Hannibal, there was an episode called Fromage that was essentially about friendship. And for me, that show, and the reason to do the show was that Hannibal Lecter had been previously seen incarcerated without relationships and the reason to do a show is to see that character strive to have a connection and to have a friendship. So it was an episode, fortunately, that we have the device of psychiatry where people can say very expressly what they want and he was able to say to his psychiatrist, I want a friend. And that felt like it was an interesting new way into a character that we previously would have no conception of him even caring about relationships. Uh, and this is a good question, and it's something that interests me as well, uh, and I'm curious from the rest of you guys, maybe starting with Mike, is there an episode, you know, of Parks and Rec or of something that you've written where you can say, this is the one where things came together, or even a scene? Uh, com- the idea of, like, coming together, I think, is, like, a kind of a slower process like it sort of gradually comes together but there are certainly episodes where I felt when they were done that that really were like yes we did it there was an episode of um, 
Parks and Rec called Pawnee Rangers, where Leslie, yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, Leslie uh, was like basically running like a Girl Scout troop in in opposition to Ron's Boy Scout troop, and he wouldn't lead boys, he wouldn't let girls into his troop, and. I just, it was a story that just like clicked really quickly and well, and, and it ended in a, a very, to my mind, heartwarming Leslie and Ron, which is really the heart of the show kind of thing. And, and also, like, the B story was, um, was, that, was that Donna and Tom had this day called Treat Yourself. It's <laughs> like, just like a pay in to excess, like like just buying material goods in a fetishistic way. And, and But even then, that had a sort of emotional component where Ben was missed Leslie because they'd broken up and he ended up in a Batman suit. And it, was like, and it was just everything about it. And Charles McDougall, who's an amazing director, directed it incredibly well. And when it was done and we locked it, I just thought, like, you know, I, I, I don't know anything, but this, to me, like, this is just like the perfect episode of our show. And I was so happy with it. And then the night it aired, I went on the AV club, and they were like, nah, B minus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that what actually made me stop reading the internet. Like, I, because I, I, I got to this point where I was like, I don't, you know, everyone's entitled to his or her opinion, certainly. But I, I had this real, like, cognitive dissonance where I was like, I think that's perfect. And that guy was just like, nah. And, and they like our show, generally speaking. That site, I, don't, I haven't read it in a while now, but they, that, that moment where they just, I was confronted with like a, like an 81, you know? Like, 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 I just felt like I can't, I don't, I don't want, didn't want to subject myself to that kind of emotional roller coaster anymore. So I stopped, I actually stopped. I had promised myself I was going to do it for years, and that actually made me stop reading. So thank you, B minus. <laughs> uh, Greg, what about you? Is there something you've you've worked on where you've said everything is clicking in this one? Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna speak quickly because I have a lot of boring shit to get through. <laughs> um, no, I we uh, I thought about that uh, and gave it a term, which I called the Ur episode, and uh, I don't even know what that came from. Some I think it means like the the essence of the show boiled into one episode or something. Anyway, on King of the Hill, there was one where Hank was constipated. And, um, and it was, to me, it was the perfect one because it was like his entire, um, you know, characteristic was, was based on that. And then to have a physical expression of it. So it was like, and then for years later, you'd, you'd see echoes of it in all the other episodes, kind of the structure of it. But in the, in the um, you know, and in the office, it was probably diversity day because it was like the, the most charged you know, place for Michael to put his foot in it. But, but if you want to say the, like what I thought the best episode was, for example, of The Office, um, there was an episode called, I think, Business School. And, um, and of course, Mike wrote a lot of great ones, who I, which I would almost pick. But for this one, uh, uh, this one had three stories. And, and, and the story was that um, Ryan had gotten Michael to talk to his business school class. And Michael did a terrible terrible foolish lecture and everything and, and Pam had a little arts class opening and nobody from the office came and then um, Jim uh, had decided to try and trick Dwight into believing that he was turning into a vampire <laughs> and um, uh, you know and I think and at the end uh, Michael went to showed up unexpectedly at Pam's art class after his devastatingly you know tragically failure of a day and bought one of her 
works of art and brought it back to the office. And I think what I liked about it so much was that, um, you know, that there was this emotional connection between two main characters, but it wasn't Jim and Pam. It was like Pam and Michael. And But again, when you think about it, um, it was directed by Joss Whedon. And I think that it was one of the best directed episodes ever, too. And I don't know if we ever... I mean, I, I, the fact that Mike Park talked about Charles McDougall, I mean, for a single-camera show, that often makes the big difference about what's like... You can have a great script, but if the director really knocks it out of the park, it's, you know, that's very important. Yeah. Uh, Liz, what about you? Uh, something you've worked on where you can say everything is clicking here? <laughs> <laughs> that's so my personality. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, like, so afraid that no one's going to know this, you know, every, every episode. I'll know it. I've seen it like, like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> gonna I'm going to clap. Whatever you say. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, now I built it up. Uh, okay, no, I, I, there was one this year that just for me, I, I mean, I, I think obviously our show's in the second season, or was, isn't now in the third season, but I think we're still, you know, figuring it out, and, um, uh, there, but there was one episode this season that, for me, um, I just I just love, um, and it was actually the only one that I kind of watched. Uh, I didn't have a big bag of weed, but <laughs> I was hoping someone would ask him where he got it. That's his weed. <laughs> was that not oh. you in the story? That was no. <laughs> Story. Sorry. A friend. <laughs> uh, um, Which it episode was, it, it was, was it? I'm sorry, parking spot. It was, it was called parking spot, and it was about like all the right. It was. Uh, it was sort of. I, I don't know. It was just. It was this episode where everybody was fighting over a park. It was just so hard fought in the in the writers' room because we wanted it to be so much bigger and much more about the kiss but it ended up just being about the parking spot and again with the constipated like the, the physical manifestation of where the characters were it was just so interesting to me to see Nick, Justin, Schmidt kind of all sitting in this one parking spot like just you know not moving out of it and it felt like these are these characters you know where they are in their life and who they are and um, I, I just I, it makes me laugh so hard <laughs> And that's really embarrassing to admit because it's my show. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, Vince. Uh, I, I worked on a, on, a, on a show that was a spinoff of the X Files called The Lone Gunman, and 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 uh, uh, before The Lone Gunman went on the air on King of the Hill, another uh, wonderful Fox show, there was uh, Dale. The character of Dale wore a T-shirt uh, that, that said, "Bring back the Lone Gunman." <laughs> Was the most awesome thing in the world, <laughs> and, and indeed, uh, yeah, they, they, Dale, Dale knew of what he. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Is that a good story? I don't know who pitched that. <laughs> That's good. We'll take it. Uh, Carlton, you said the constant. Uh, Ian and Jay, is there even a sketch that you can look at and say, "This is the one. This is the distillation of what Key and well, Peele is." You know, I was going to just say the pilot of the of Key and Peele was really. I think if you look look at every sketch in that. In the pilot, there's sort of the germ of every character that comes after that, or is in that, is in that pilot. With uh, you know, you have Obama and his uh, anger translator Luther, and then the, <laughs> there's this, there's a very the, the cold open sort of sets, basically sets the tone for the entire series, which is 
is basically that um, one, of, one of them starts talking in a kind of intense uh, urban black voice because they're afraid of the other one, and they, one, they both turn out to be gay at the end of it. <laughs> and then uh, there's a sketch, a sketch called um, Bitch, which, which, is a, which is kind of like a signature sketch in the sense that a lot of, the, a lot of what we do in the show is playing on macho role types and how and sort of the, the mushy underpinnings of that. And it's basically two guys who are talking about their wives who are in the other room, and the, um, they keep on saying it. And I said to her, bitch. And they, they, they lower their voice every time they say bitch. And, and it gets quieter and quieter, and, they, and, then, and then they have to keep moving away from the live, and they end up in like a space station orbiting the Earth. And, you know, so. I like that show. It's a good show. Um, all right, very quickly, uh, we'll start with Ian and we'll come down the line. What are you watching on television? Is there anything your room is talking about? Is there anything that's getting great. you... great. I'm watching a lot of this yeah. stuff. Right <laughs> uh, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, uh, Parks and Rec. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I New Girl's great. Team, New I got a long TiVo <laughs> thing. Go. Yeah. Carl? Yeah, I mean, you know, same thing. I'm waiting for Vince's show to come back. It's driving me crazy. We actually, one of his writers uh, is working... Uh, with me on the on the strain, and you know, so we're kind of constantly torturing her every day for some tidbits about the upcoming uh, Breaking Bad season. Uh, I got a lot of catching up to do. A lot of these, all these wonderful shows. Uh, Key, I have seen a lot of Key and Peele, uh, and that is a damn funny show. Uh, that uh, the uh, uh, the uh, that slave auction sketch was amazing. Yeah, I love that damn thing. That is a damn funny show. Thanks. And you well, had I, Dean Norris. You had Dean Norris. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, that's funny. Uh, um, we should say, yeah, Dean Norris, he came to us and basically said, I just want to play um, a drug dealer because he, he plays the, um, you know, the DEA officer. So, so he said, we said, okay, and he came on and he played this. So, we get, you know, he made him look Mexican. And... <laughs> I will say, Vince's reaction to Keen Peel is, is honest, because when I told him that Ian and Jay were going to be here, he was like, oh, man, i got to meet those guys. <laughs> well, it's so funny, because during the season, we used to write uh, screenplays, and it would always be, first 15 to 20 minutes would be, what the fuck? I did Breaking Bad, it was crazy. So we always waste our first half hour dissecting Breaking Bad. Uh, Liz, Liz, what are you watching? You're on hiatus. Are you watching any TV? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not but I love all the shows. <laughs> I, I do have that weed for you. <laughs> I really, Great. I, I love, I like all these shows. I also like uh, Justified. Yeah. Yeah, good are you guys watching Justified? Watch it. Oh my God. I, there's so much good TV, I'll say that. I don't know. I really, I mean, there's just amazing shows being made. Yeah. Greg? Yes. Um, I watched a lot of New Girl this uh, year. I did some gulp watching of Breaking Bad or binge watching, whatever we call it. Um, Big gulp watching. Uh, and Peel, I love. I love this show, Nathan For You, which is uh, another great comedy show. show. Um, and, and I'm really into Game of Thrones for. Yeah. Which um, the Parks and Rec staff turned me on to, which I, at first I was very dismissive when they said they were so into it. And I was like, yeah, Dungeons and Dragons, weirdos, nerds. <laughs> and, uh, and then I got completely hooked, so. 
My as long as we're throwing love at Key and Peele, I think that the sketch where they're uh, ordering soul food with each other is maybe the funniest thing I've ever seen. You guys know that sketch? That is so, that, that might be my, I said the East West Bowl was my favorite, but I think uh-huh. the soul food was my But I, uh, I'll, I'll just echo, I told, I told Vince backstage that I had, in 1999, I, had, I started to get an irrational fear that I would die before the Phantom Menace came out. <laughs> I was so excited to see it, and then it came out, and it's arguably the worst film ever. So I was angry at myself for for worrying that I was going to die. But now I'm not kidding. I've started to have that feeling again about Breaking Bad. I'm extremely nervous. That I drive really carefully. Um, but, but all, all the same shows, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Game of Thrones, I'm a huge Justified fan. Uh, like, it, it really is true. There's too many shows you can't keep. You can't possibly keep up. You could do nothing but watch great television all day of your life, and you would still be behind. So it's sad. It's great and sad. So. Yeah. Brian? Um, the Walking Dead, I adore. And American Horror Story and <laughs> Good answer. Oh, Veep is amazing. <laughs> you, you, you can all tweet more answers later. That's fine. Um, please give a round of applause for all of our Ian Robert, Jay Michael, Tom Keith, Vince Golden, Chris Merriweather, Greg Daniels, Mike Shore, and Brian Fuller. Uh, thanks to everyone here at Largo at the Coronet. Thanks, Alec. Thanks, Mr. Flanagan. Uh, thanks to H6LA. Go visit their website, h6la.org. Hold on, there are more thanks. Uh, thanks to my wife, Julie, for helping out. Uh, to Sarah Watkins and her very handsome band. To the Nerdist Industries and Katie up there in the booth as well. Uh, my name is Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. And tell me who you want to see on these Nerdist Writers panels. We put out the podcast every week. Uh, it comes out every Tuesday. Uh, and we're starting to do a comics version, a comic book version, every Saturday that we'll, uh, where we'll talk about comics and about comic writers and uh, the business of writing comics as we do with TV. Um, so, yeah, follow me on Twitter. Go like us on Facebook. All of that stuff. Thank you guys all so much. Have a good night. Now leaving Nerdist.com.